We're back on Chicago Stuck in Misery. This is KCOU 88.1. We have an exciting guest. He is a former University of Missouri basketball player. He is the former TV play-by-play announcer for the Chicago Bulls on Comcast Sportsnet. And he's the current announcer for the Lingerie Football League. We have Tom Dore on the line. Third time's a charm. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Gentlemen, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Doing well today. It's a it's a nice day outside, and uh, the NBA draft was last night. Um, it's my understanding, though, that you're announcing for the Lingerie Football League. How on earth did you land that job? You're the luckiest man alive. <laughs> um, they uh, they called me, and um, you know I'm doing a few other things right now, but uh, but I wanted to keep my hand in the announcing gig, and this sounded like a, sounded like a fun one. And it's been a very interesting ride, I can tell you that. Are you married, Tom? Yes, sir. <laughs> what's For 31 your, years. What's your, what's your wife think about this? She thinks it's funny. That's hilarious. That's, yeah. that's great. Did she ever go to the games with you? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 55, and most of these girls are young enough to be almost a granddaughter. So <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of concern on her part. That's funny. So, uh, switching things over to uh, last night's NBA draft, uh, what do you think was the main storyline? Oh, boy, I think uh, Thomas Robinson falling a couple spots uh, early on was was a storyline. But I I think he had a few. Perry Jones falling as far as he did, but going to Oklahoma City, I think, was another one. Um, And then after that, it's, you know, there are people taking – Taking athletes rather than basketball players, Sullinger falling to uh, 21. This is a guy that can score in the NBA. I, I can guarantee you that at 6'9", 270, he will put points up in the NBA. The question is his back. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that, you know, teams do a lot of research, do as much as they can, and hope that they come up with the right answers. But you're never sure, and you're not sure for a long time. Is there a difference uh, between the game, the way the game's played nowadays, compared to when you played? Mm, yeah, I think it's uh, it continues to be more about um, strength and athleticism. Um, back then, it was more basketball skills. Now you've got to have those basketball skills, but you've got to have the physical strength to be able to. Uh, to really compete and push people around. And it was a tougher league maybe back then because they let more go and certainly let the, uh, let the veterans get away with even more than they do now. But, um, but I think it's um, – and the level of athleticism that's in the game right now is just off the charts. What so, these guys can do physically is unreal. So you keep talking about the size and, I guess, the weight of all these players and the height. What do you think about these guys who are barely pushing 190? I mean, you got Jared Cunningham – I mean, let's see who else is under 190. You've got... I mean, you had Kevin Durant a couple of years ago who couldn't even bench 185. Right. And then you got Jeremy uh, Jeremy Lamb, who's 180. You think you think they'll do anything in the NBA? Yeah, I, I think they can, but they're going to have to put on weight. You know, uh, Lillard, you talked about him, 6'3", 189. Right. At 6'3", I think he's fine. Mm-hmm. But, but some of these guys like Terrence Ross, a guy from the University of Washington, 6'7", not quite 200 pounds. Um, I, I think he's a really bright player and can do an awful lot, but it may be a couple of years before physically he can compete in the league. And that may, may, may make some people angry, I don't know, but it's just a, it's such a physical league. Harrison Barnes, another one, 6'8", 228, 
but he's kind of on the thin side, right. and it depends on how they're going to use him. They might use him as a three. If that's the case, he's probably got a great body, but if they use him as a four, he's going to have to put on a lot of weight and a lot of muscle. So it also depends on the role that these guys are going to play, and it's not so much what you're going to do on offense. It's more who you're going to guard on defense and how you can match up. Well, that's true. I mean, when I mean, not only when they're defending, but when they're slashing. I mean, when you're going in the lane against Andre Drummond, who's seven foot two seventy nine, you're going against uh, Myers Leonard, who's seven one two fifty. I mean, and then you've got the veterans in the NBA. I mean, LeBron's pretty pretty dang big too. So I mean, it's going to be tough for some of these guys for at least a few years until they put on some weight. And for a lot of these guys, it is going to be really tough. You get to the NBA and. You know, you just go through your first mini camp with the guys. You you know, you play some summer ball with the guys, and you realize, wow, you know, I'm I am no longer athletically going to be able to dominate. And that's when you have to have the athleticism, and you have to be a great player. You have to be strong. You have to be quick. And if you can do all those things, you got a shot. But it's not easy. It is not easy to make that transition, even for the number one or two pick. So now that we've had a couple couple days after uh, the NBA Finals, LeBron James is an NBA champion. He's won a title, and it certainly validates his greatness as a player, but is he in any way comparable to Michael Jordan at this stage of his career? Yeah, offensively, I think he is. I don't think there's any question about it. I think both he and Kobe are guys that offensively, Kevin Durant, you could put in that same picture. But what set Michael Jordan apart was his defense. Um, he was... almost every game that I saw, he was the best defensive player on the floor. Akeem Olajuwon would be in that same team picture. You know, there are other guys there. But generally, he was the premier defensive player on the floor at the time. And his ability to help, to hedge, his ability to make you think he might come over and help, that kind of thing really set him apart and set those teams apart. Their defensive rotations were just unbelievably good, and they talked about that a lot um, on the bus, on the plane, at dinner, at practice. That's something that they really concentrated on, and that I think sets them apart from a lot of the really great teams that I see right now. But, I mean, one thing that LeBron James can do currently that Michael Jordan couldn't do back in the day, I mean, LeBron can cover almost guaranteed anyone on the court. I don't know if there's a whole lot Michael Jordan couldn't do on a basketball floor, though. I mean, well, obviously, I mean, he's still a great defender, but I mean, when you look at LeBron, I don't care if you're talking point guard or center who's seven foot two, LeBron can guard them all. I mean, obviously, with Michael Jordan's, I mean, height and weight, he, he couldn't physically do that, but I mean, what do you think there? I mean, you're talking LeBron James, the, probably one of the only players in the NBA who can literally guard every one, two, three, four, and five position on the court. Yeah, he, um, he's got unbelievable uh, physical skills. There's no two ways about it. The difference, I think, and LeBron may develop into this, but the difference was the know-how, the ability to hedge on defense, which, you know, to make it look like you're coming to help and not come help and still stop a a play from running. LeBron doesn't do those things, and he doesn't give the defensive effort all the time. He finally did in the finals. I was really impressed with what he did in the finals defensively and offensively. He He was terrific. But I think through the course of the year, the difference is that Michael Jordan brought that same defensive intensity to every practice and every game, and that's what set him apart. Two-part question for you here. What was it like to announce for one of the greatest teams ever 
in the golden age of basketball for the Chicago Bulls. And at what point did you realize what was transpiring? Well, I knew when they hired me, I realized what a great organization it was. Um, you know, I was there through the whole, almost the whole thing. I missed the first championship, but I was there, <clears throat> pardon me, for the other five. And um, the year that they won 72 games, <clears throat> gosh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't get rid of this, but the year that they won uh, that they won all 70, I before the season I said that they were a power forward away from being one of the greatest of all times. And I remember that I was on a talk show a lot like this in Chicago, and the guys were like, are you kidding me? They're not that good. They could win a championship. They get Dennis Rodman um, in a great trade. And the difference became obvious almost from the first day of training camp. This is a team now that could do absolutely everything and had every weapon that they needed. It was so much fun every night because they could attack you offensively like a lot of teams could. But with Michael as the centerpiece of the defense, they would attack teams defensively, and they called it the Doberman defense because they'd get guys that could run as, you know, they're as quick as a dog. And they would be able to go out and literally chase you and make you do things that you didn't want to do defensively. And that's where they were so much different. Again, that's where Michael was so much different. God, he was so smart defensively. He and I would sit on the plane and talk a lot about, okay, you came over to help at this point in time, but the same play two plays later you didn't. What were you thinking about? And we'd get into these great discussions about defensive philosophy. And um, this is a guy that truly studied every aspect of the other team's game and knew what their tendencies were. You know, they talk about that now, like in baseball. And a 2-2 pitch, this guy's generally going to throw a curveball on the outside corner, something like that. He knew, as well as the coaches, or maybe better than the coaches, what those teams were going to do. And so he knew, instead of driving on that play, this guy's going to kick it back out nine times out of ten. And, again, it just that kind of thing just set him apart from everybody that I've seen before or since play in the NBA. It's kind of funny because that's pretty much what we had here a couple of years ago at Mizzou with uh, Coach Mike Anderson with the uh, 40 Minutes of Hell where we, we pretty much just run in full-court press the whole time, kind of very similar. But quick question. You worked with Johnny, uh, Johnny Red Kerr for 17 years. What impact did he have on you? This guy was just – he was my best friend. You know, we, he was my lunch buddy, my uh, my dinner buddy, my breakfast buddy. We'd go fishing together. We'd play golf together. We'd, we'd do everything almost all day together, whatever it was. And he was 30 years older than me. Mm -hmm. um, when I came in, he put his arm around me. He introduced me to everybody that I needed to be introduced to. If I had something that was going on, he'd say, oh, I know who can help you with that. Let's go talk to so-and-so. And, -so. and um, he was as good as gold and as good a person as he was an announcer. And Johnny, how he's not in the Hall of Fame just is beyond me. But I think there's a guy with that had a, uh, had a grudge against him and kept him out of the NBA. And I remember Red at one point in time looked at me and said, you know what, the heck with him. Actually, it was a little stronger than that. But um, if, they, if they vote me into the Hall of Fame posthumously, I'm not going. <laughs> and it was one of the funniest lines I've ever heard, and he did it on the air. It literally, it took me about a minute to be able to start doing the play-by-play -play again. I was laughing so hard. But that's just who Johnny was. He was the guy, and he obviously he loved this, you know, to be the center of attention. But what a terrific guy, and uh, I miss my friend. I really, truly do.
We all we all do certainly. Um, was there any animosity when you were replaced by Neil Funk as play-by-play man on Comcast Sportsnet? No. In fact, the first guy that I called when the Bulls called me, the first guy I called was Neil. And I said, hey, you'll do a great job. You know, let me go through a few of the things. And Neil didn't know. I, I'm the one that told him kind of what was going on. And um, he said, you're out of your mind. They're not getting rid of you. And I said, well, they already have. I'm telling you that. That part's done. But I still talk to Neil three or four times a year. We play golf together. Um, no, it, a lot of these, a lot of these decisions in the media, in businesses, especially at the upper levels, are not personality driven. They're business driven. Can they save money by making a move? Can they, uh, can they increase their revenue somehow by making a move? You know, when they, when they fired me, they called me in and put their arm around me and said, "We love you." You know, but. This is the fact. This is what we're going to do, and this is why we're doing it. So no, I got nothing against Neil or the Bulls or that organization. In fact, I'm wearing a White Sox shirt right now. So <laughs> I right. give you a little bit of an idea how I feel about it. Tom, I got a question for you kind of outside of basketball, and I want you to be completely honest with me on this. But your LinkedIn profile says you, in quotes, hung out with Dennis Rodman one night in New York City. Uh, can you tell us what happened that night? Uh, I can't tell you many of the things. I can tell you some of them. Um, we got in at five, and when I recover, I'll let you know. Uh, it was um, it was everything you can imagine. It was D Rod is uh, is a knucklehead, but a good friend, and he's everything you don't think he is. He's shy, he's quiet, he's introverted, and I I swear in a stack of Bibles about that. He goes but, he goes uh, hard in the paint, both on the court and off the court. Oh God, Dennis is. Um, I mean, the places we went, the things that I saw that night, I'll never forget. Uh, coming out of high school, you were an All-American. What made you choose the University of Missouri over any of the other schools that recruited you? I love Norm Stewart. You know, I got—I was a third-team All-American, as you said, or second, depending on what you, you know, where you want to call it. Bill, it was Bill Cartwright and B, and Bill Lambert. We were the three, basically, the three guys that people were talking about. And uh, the first time we played against each other was California against the United States in an All-American Classic, and uh, they were loaded that year. California was just loaded. Um, And the first game we played was in Sacramento, just down the road from Billy Cartwright's uh, hometown. And um, we had had some great battles. I loved playing against Bill. Before the knee surgery and ankle surgery, we we really had fun playing against each other. Um, But... uh, Missouri was there was I mean I love the journalism school I love the University of Missouri I truly uh, value my time there but I came to Missouri because of Norm Stewart he never offered me a thing outside of room board books tuition and fees and I can still see him sitting in my high school coach's office telling me all that he was not a great recruiter he was not a salesman this guy was a basketball coach and uh, he didn't get out coached what years were you here again 76 to 80. Okay, that's when my dad was here, too. But uh, with the new conference change, I wanted to uh, ask you, how do you feel about Missouri moving from the Big 12 to the SEC, especially when you were here during the uh, I think it's a terrific move. You hate to lose the rivalries, you know, and everybody talks about Kansas, but there's Kansas State, there's Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Iowa State. Um, You know, there's there's those friendships and a bond when you're with another team, another school like that, even though you're competing against each other, there's still a terrific bond with those schools. All that said, 
you know, I, I talk a lot to a lot of the alumni groups, and, and they were concerned that Brady Deaton was not going to be able to do what needed to be done. And I've known him a long time, and I had terrific faith in him and his ability to lead the University of Missouri along with Mike Alden. And, and to be able to come out, as they have, into the premier conference in the country, um, I think is just a, a testament to what guys like Brady Deaton and Mike Alden have been able to do at Missouri and continue to do. You know, you look at the upgrades and the facilities, you look at the conference moves, you look at what's going on academically as well. I, I, I think it's such a terrific time to be at the University of Missouri and to be able to see the changes as they're happening. Wow, it's uh, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's unreal. I mean, I work with the athletic department in both marketing and ticket sales, and uh, the phones have been off the hook for season tickets. There's a lot of hype about joining the new conference. And, I mean, like you mentioned, the $30 million upgrade they just announced for all the the uh, over at Matsy and, and all the other athletic complexes, it's going to be unreal. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, uh, it, it's a great time, and, you know, I, I live in Austin, Texas, so I'm a ways away. But, um, you know, I've got so many great friends there and so many terrific memories of the University of Missouri. Tom, we'll leave you with this last question. What was your most memorable moment here at the University of Missouri? Holy cow. Um, you know, you talk about winning NCAA tournament games. You talk about so many things. But I think instead of a moment, I'm going to go with the bond, the bond of people that uh, I still consider close friends. You know, Larry Drew and I went through together um, at Missouri, and I, I still talk to Larry a lot. Uh, Steve Stepanovich, John Sunvold, all the guys from that, that era, Mike Foster, a guy you guys probably never heard of, but, but a true Rudy story in basketball, an absolutely true Rudy story that this guy gave everything he had every second of every day. Um, so those guys, I think, in those relationships, and Coach Stewart, that I, I, I cannot say enough about what a terrific guy he was. He taught me more about being a man than anybody else I've ever run across. I think Coach Hayes doing the same thing with the uh, the new classes this year. I know, I know the, the past absolutely. senior class was... He's, was... He's, he's been fabulous, and the moves they've made, Dave Lato is, uh, is an acquaintance of mine, not really a friend, but an acquaintance of mine, and um, I've known Dano, Dave a long time. And that's the kind of people. Dave is just a terrific person. Throw all the basketball stuff aside. He's unbelievable at recruiting, unbelievable coach. This is one of the really true quality people you'll ever meet. And uh, that's what's happening in Missouri, up and down. You know, you look at football, basketball, baseball, volleyball, everywhere, women's basketball. They're putting good people that have a chance to succeed and giving them the tools to do that. I, 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 can't, th I can't say enough about what's going on right now in Missouri. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, despite all the technical difficulties, too. Uh, we really appreciate it. More than happy to come on, guys. Look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you again so much. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to Chicago Stuck in Misery on 88.1 KCOU.